From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. This week, the federal government released its latest implementation plan for closing the gap on Indigenous disadvantage. That gap, of course, remains a yawning one in many areas, with important targets in health, education, justice and employment not on track to be met. The latest plan concentrates on jobs, with more than $700 million for a new remote employment program. Today, we're joined by Malandiri McCarthy, who's Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians, to talk about the government's Indigenous Affairs policy post last year's failed voice referendum. Malandiri McCarthy, looking at the Closing the Gap report and the various areas in which little or no progress is being made, why is it so hard to get change in these areas? For example, in kids' development, children out of home care, adult prison rates and suicide prevention. The report by the Productivity Commission and then the Closing the Gap figures themselves uh, certainly highlight to our country that we have still a long way to go uh, in the improvement of First Nations people and the disparity that is clearly still there on so many of those issues. I know from state and territory uh, levels that there are far greater increases, perhaps still not at the pace that we'd like to see. If I refer to the Northern Territory, for example, uh, working with families and babies before they even start at kindergarten and primaries is quite successful with the Families as First Teachers program. It's a very good program and initiative that covers our schools across the Northern Territory. It's still not enough, of course, when you look at the out-of-home care numbers of First Nations children removed at phenomenal rates. And that's why, as part of uh, dealing with that particular target, we've announced the National Commissioner uh, for Aboriginal children and youth across Australia. So that will be incredibly important. The Albanese government came in 18 months ago conscious that we are so far behind in many of these targets, but we are working swiftly and in particular the areas of health to try to see a change with the Aboriginal community health sector and the Aboriginal community sector in general. Given how much money is being spent in these areas, do you believe that it's being used effectively and if not, should more be done to ensure this money goes to the right areas? For example, the opposition is calling for an audit. Wouldn't that be useful? One of the critical areas that came through or responses from the Productivity Commission's report was the fact that it needed buy-in with First Nations people, uh, that there needed to be systemic change, that there needed to be structural change. Uh, to enable First Nations people to be very much a part of the decision-making, irrespective of what funding was involved. Um, But, of course, if there was uh, an incredible amount of uh, funding involved, it was absolutely important to have First Nations people uh, involved with the decision-making. We took uh, the chance of listening to First Nations people's solution, and that was to have a voice to the federal parliament Uh, enshrined in the Constitution. We firmly believed that that would go a long way to assisting with these calls around structural and systemic change. 
we were unsuccessful in that referendum. So now we have to look at other alternatives that really focus on the status quo, the status quo that we did want to change and how we can try and continue to improve it. And it will continually be a challenge unless First Nations people's voices are at the table. Just before we get to uh, how you listen better, just on this question of auditing, do you think there is a case for a comprehensive audit? Well, there are numerous audits that are put before the Parliament, especially in the Senate. Uh, We receive audits on land councils. We receive audits uh, in terms of uh, organisations. The Australian National Audit Office does that uh, quite appropriately. And uh, it does that for Indigenous organisations as it does for non-Indigenous organisations. So on this question of listening, the national voice was rejected, but what consultation processes are you looking to put in place? Uh, For example, could you get more regional voices, state voices? We have an arrangement with the Coalition of Peaks across the country uh, and clearly... Now that's, just for our listeners, that's the National Umbrella Organisation for Indigenous bodies. That's correct, Michelle. So we have an arrangement, uh, an agreement, I should say, with the Coalition of Peaks. In fact, it was uh, solidly initiated by the previous Indigenous Australians Minister, Ken White, uh, when he uh, negotiated with the Coalition of Peaks uh, what the Closing the Gap targets would look like and what the goals and aspirations would be. We have continued that. Uh, And certainly with the uh, failure of the referendum in securing a yes vote, uh, we will continue to work with the Coalition of Peaks and each state and territory jurisdiction to work with uh, them at their level to see what they can do to enable First Nations people to have that access to their parliament and decision-making. In South Australia, we see that they're going to an election this year in terms of a voice to their parliament Uh, We will certainly be watching that closely to see how they progress. Uh, But for now, it really is about uh, continuing to go around in my area of health, for example, working with the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Sector and all of those uh, health organisations that are a part of that. As part of its um, implementation program announced this week, the government promised this $700 million for jobs in remote areas and it thinks that it can have created 3,000 jobs with that funding. But this is sort of easier said than done, isn't it? Because in remote areas, the chances for employment are not so great. How much do you think you can guarantee that these jobs, real jobs, will be created? I'm confident we could do this quite well, Michelle, and I'll give you a reason for that. Uh, The Community Development Program has had many iterations and one of the first was called CDEP, the Community Development Employment Program. And under the CDEP, uh, that particular structure uh, empowered community and organisations to have their own finance to then determine how they were going to employ staff within their community. So, for example, at Tea Tree, Uh, If they decided in that organisation they needed more uh, childcare workers in their local childcare or if they needed more uh, carers in the aged care, they could then employ uh, people based on the skills that they had in that community without having to have any fly-in, fly-out 
people. They could work with their current skill set or provide the training to enable them to get to a particular point. So that was quite successful. In fact, it was a program I was on at one stage um, when I was trying to set up community radio in my home community when I'd gone home to do some work there or teaching. And the CDEP worked well. I was able to set up uh, community radio through uh, that particular organisation, recognising the skills that I had. So what we'd like to see uh, going forward here is that we would reach out to not only community organisations who know what they need in terms of staffing, but also to local government. Uh, when I was a minister in the local government in Northern Territory, I fought very hard for the, this particular program called CDEP to be maintained because of the skills that were required in respective communities. Some communities need different kinds of employment. So in the desert communities, they would have different things that they would need there as opposed to those in the north. For example, you'd have uh, rangers, uh, sea rangers out on boats working on that. In the desert country, you'd have rangers who just need uh, more vehicles, uh, more ways of getting out across the desert country. What kind of uh, things, resources do they need? That's just one example. So I think what, what, what this really is about is going back to uh, that empowerment of local people with their local knowledge. So would you envisage a lot of um, training being done away from these sites, from the particular communities, or do you think most of the training would be essentially on-the-job training? Well, it would really be a combination of what that particular organisation or community wanted. So, for example, you have in the Northern Territory, you'd have Charles Darwin University that can provide outreach and skills training. You have the Bachelor Tertiary Institute, which can provide whether it's health or any other forms of employment, whether it's around um, becoming Aboriginal interpreters in the justice system to assist with the courts when they go out to communities, uh, what kind of training they would require. So that you do have a number of areas who could do it. There would also be other registered um, RTOs who could do it and it would be the same for the other states where the CDP program currently exists. But what you're saying is uh, this would involve quite a lot of high-level training. Well, it depends on what the actual task is. Uh, you know, for example, I was already trained when I went on CDEP, so I didn't need any further training. So not everyone will need training because you already have so many people who've been trained almost for decades and not been able to do anything. So, so this is where uh, we will be reaching out to organisations and local community and saying, well, point out the jobs you need so we can link up the unemployed people who want to look at working in your particular area. So the people going on to this program would be without jobs. They wouldn't be people who could get jobs easily in the wider job market, would they? Well, a lot of these people have jobs under the CDP or are working under the CDP, but they're not full-time jobs. They're not jobs with superannuation, with long service leave, with all the kind of protections that come to being, to have dignity in the, in the workplace. So how is the program going to be overseen at a national level? Well, we have from now until September to... Uh, formalise or complete uh, the establishment of that oversight. 
and I would expect that uh, through the minister's office and uh, through the agency that there would be that oversight, but also an opportunity to include uh, some form of reference group uh, towards uh, that oversight. So we're still working through that, Michelle, and I expect uh, that those organisations who we already work with, for example, in northeast Arnhem Land, you have the Arnhem Land Progress Association, uh, those organisations who definitely require this kind of program uh, will give us advice as to how they're going as well. Is there any scope to bring in a parliamentary committee here so you try and get a bit of bipartisanship? We have had uh, parliamentary inquiries into CDP over a number of years and uh, it does not uh, exclude the Senate from holding uh, any form of inquiry if they feel uh, that is the next step for it. I have no doubt that at some point there will be some form of inquiry. Let me turn to another aspect of the Prime Minister's speech this week. It's been interpreted as the government moving away from treaty after the referendum. Is that right? I know there's been lots of um, commentary on what happens next with regards to uh, treaty and Makarata. I think from my perspective, I feel that uh, we have to do two things. One is let the states and territories guide us as to what they're doing in that space. Uh, we met, um, Minister Burney and myself met with uh, the Indigenous Affairs Ministers after the referendum to see well, what were they doing in this space of, uh, of treaty in particular. So we're, we are mindful that there is work going on, especially in places like Victoria where it is way ahead uh, in terms of the First Peoples Assembly. And in terms of Makarata, I would like to hear from uh, people in the Northern Territory as to what they want to see happen next. Now, Makarata involves both agreement-making, i.e. treaty, and truth-telling, doesn't it? No, my understanding of treaty is the treaty is about the is is about the truth telling, and um, treaty is about negotiating, having a look at the, your past, but also being able to move forward with what are the things that you agree on. Um, in terms of the Makarata, that in itself, it can be anything really in terms of coming together after a conflict, which is a, a really strong word for the Yolngu people who gave us the opportunity to use Makarata. And so that commission would be it would enable that opportunity for people to speak at that. Now, at the moment, there's money in the budget for a Makarata commission, isn't there? So where is that up to and where is it going? That money was allocated um, in the first budget uh, for a Makarata commission. That money is still there. Uh, we are clearly working our way through to see how we progress in this space, uh, if we progress in this space. I certainly would like to, as a not only as a Assistant Minister in Indigenous Australians, but as Senator for the Northern Territory, would like us to continue to work in that space. Uh, we do, and we did believe, and we still do believe, the importance of uh, the gathering that came together in 2017, Michelle, by First Nations people across the country uh, who put so much thought into uh, voice, treaty and truth. And as disappointing as the outcome of the referendum was, I think for now what we're doing is giving people time. Uh, if anything... Uh, there's no rush. So is the federal government still committed to 
the rest of the statement of the Uluru meeting, or we know that the voice, the national voice is off the agenda, but but are you still saying you're committed to the rest of it? Well, I personally believe we are, because it was quite traumatic for First Nations people to lose the referendum. And like any trauma, you have to give people time, time to recover from it, time to reflect on it, time to find the energy to want to walk in that space again. And from a cultural point of view, that's that's really important. So just because the voice was unsuccessful at the referendum doesn't mean Treaty and Makarata have to be. So eventually, would you envisage, after the states work on treaties, an overarching national treaty? I think it's too early to say in terms of a national position, this is why it is important to take our time. Uh, unlike closing the gap, you know, trying to close those statistics is urgent, so we're focused on that. Uh, we recognise that Treaty and Makarata are still very much important uh, to the thousands of First Nations people and in no doubt the people who voted yes. And we will revisit that, in my view. I believe we will. Look, Michelle, I guess for me to sum up on Treaty and Truth-Telling, as not only the Assistant Minister in Indigenous Affairs and Indigenous Health and not only as the Senator for the Northern Territory, but as a Yanua Garua woman. You know, treaty to me is still unfinished business for First Nations people and our country, just like truth-telling is. And there's no rush. We will get there. And uh, I still say to people, stay strong. On Makarata, is that just is that budget allocation just money sitting there or is there any public service structure at all on Makarata at the moment? There's no structure in terms there's of no, commission. no people. There's no structure. It's part of um, the agency's uh, role prior to the referendum to, to have a look and see what the possibilities were, are in terms of being successful at the referendum. We weren't successful, so there's certainly no structure and there's no money. Oh, sorry, structure as in a, a building or a Makarata Commission. Or people, like that. bureaucrats. There would be on. people obviously across NIAA and I'm sure the, the Chief Executive Officer can explain how they they do that. But we certainly haven't requested um, uh, work on, a, on Makarata in terms of uh, uh, the next steps forward at this particular point in time. Coming back to closing the gap, the opposition has been calling for a royal commission into sexual abuse of children in Indigenous communities. The government rejects that. Uh, could you just explain why you reject that? Do you think all the information needed is there or that it would be divisive or it's not necessary for some other reason? For a number of reasons, we reject it. Firstly, that uh, any abuse of a child must be reported straight away. And I made that very clear when the opposition leader made his announcement in Alice Springs that, uh, you know, this is such a, such a critical criminal area if this is occurring. Uh, the second thing is this, that we have organisations like uh, The Voice for Children, which is SNAKE, the Secretariat for National Aboriginal and Child Care, who have come out very strongly saying a, rec a Royal Commission is not necessary when we know what needs to be done, and that is to, to reduce the numbers of children being removed in out-of-home care who are First Nations children and who have no sense of who they are, where they are, 
and uh, this is where we should be focusing on. A Royal Commission only goes to stigmatising further uh, this belief that uh, Aboriginal families don't know how to care for their children. Now, we've obviously seen a, a major statement this week, but is this just a, a down payment on future initiatives? Do you expect that we will see in the next year or two more on the, the closing the gap, more major policies? We have, as, as an Aboriginal woman, I um, I find the the discussion around closing the gap incredibly disheartening, but I have a lot of faith in the sense that we are in our areas trying to do what we can. So I've got the coverage of health. I know that chronic kidney disease is so chronic. It's compounded by the fact that there is poverty in our communities and in our families across across the country who experience such sickness. I know that the lack of housing impacts that. So we are, as a government, reaching out through establishing 30 renal units or renal um, chairs. Well, they're actually they're units of four chairs, so 30 of those across the country to, to uh, communities. We've announced six. We're announcing more in the, in the coming month to establish them. We also need to make sure that food security and the cost of living uh, is is just as much covered so that people have healthy, nutritious food. So I see this as something that we are doing. But I also understand that the politics of Aboriginal affairs is such that it does become a political football. And a lot of the time you do spend much of it seeing it just kicked back and forwards. The budget will be coming up uh, before we know it. Uh, Pat Turner, who heads the Coalition of Peaks, has advocated for the budget to contain a statement on Indigenous affairs, programs, spending and so on, just like we have a, a women's statement in the budget, a comprehensive stock take, if you like, of what's being done. Would you favour such a statement? I think we've come a long way as a Labor Party in uh, improving the voices for First Nations people within the party. When Pat Dodson, Linda Burney and myself came in, we set up what's called the First Nations Caucus within the caucus so that we could have an impact on pieces of legislation or policy that was going before the parliament. And that caucus is not just made up of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it's of anyone who has an interest in it, who has has to represent people or large constituencies of First Nations people. And I think the call by Pat Turner for more of a focus uh, is an important one I would say this, though, that as a First Nations caucus within a Labor government, we have encouraged each of our ministers to ensure that each of their portfolio areas covers it quite strongly so that it's not just Aboriginal people who are carrying the weight of needing to improve the lives of, of our people, that it is a collective responsibility. And again, if I may refer to Pat Dodson, I think he said it succinctly when he said that Prior to the referendum, it was always about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people needing to be heard and that it was it was a real issue of the gap and the problem within in our country. He said, but after the referendum, the campaign was such and so visible that it has now become Australia's responsibility 
to close the gap. Just finally, uh, we're coming up to uh, a new Governor-General before too long. Would you like to see the next Governor-General an Indigenous person? I haven't thought much about this, so I have read a bit uh, in the in the media on it. I always think that it's wonderful to to have First Nations people succeed, but I also think that you also want that person, uh, whether it's a Governor General or or any other position, to be capable, to be skilled, uh, to and perhaps in terms of the Governor General have the empathy and. Uh, can carry the office with dignity. Thank you very much for talking with us today, Melandiri McCarthy, in a week that's an important one for moving uh, Indigenous affairs forward. Hopefully the initiatives announced this week will contribute to progress. That's all for today's Politics Podcast. Thank you to my producer, Ben Roper. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.